The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 19 verse 41, and then all the way through to the end of chapter 20. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him, And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servant and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When, there were at, when they were at the great stone t- that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. 
And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway, into the field, and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the word of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against the king David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Palathites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder. And Sheba was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we consider God's word together, let's pray and let's ask for his mercy that we may receive his word with understanding. Father, we indeed thank you for the gift of your word to us this morning. We believe that this word is holy. This word is true. It's without error. We remember what the Apostle Paul has written in his letter to the Romans that These things that we have just read were written for our instruction. And we also remember that the Apostle Paul said that the Word of God is the instruction of the Spirit to us. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, just as you have written these words and ensured their preservation, would you write them upon our hearts now? For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week that God is working out his purposes in history in the nitty-gritty of everyday life with everyday ordinary people. 
And you got a sense of how gritty it gets at times in the history of God's people in the text that we just heard. And I mentioned last week at the beginning of our our sermon on 1 Samuel 19 that the previous chapter announces all is well. It announces good news. There are these messengers that are running back from the battle and they've got good news. All is well, they say. And it was true on that day, all was well because Absalom, who had sought to take the throne from David, had been defeated. This was good news. All is well. But we very quickly learn as we read on in chapters 19 and then in 20 where we are today that all, in fact, is not well. And when it says there, all is well, the word there is shalom. All is shalom. All is peace. But as we've just read, we know all is not peace. All is not shalom. And David had gathered all the people at Gilgal. This is a significant place in the geography of Israel. This was the place where Samuel had gathered all the people. And you can read about this in 1 Samuel 12. He had gathered them all there to renew the covenant before God. This was a place of peace. This was a place of renewal. This is a place where God's people bowed down before God and renewed their commitment to his commandments, to his covenants, where they heard his promises, where they were assured of his love and his presence among them. But that's not what happens when the tribes met at Gilgal. There isn't peace. There isn't covenant renewal. There's rivalry. There's dissension. There's accusation. And David, who is to be the king, the one who is to rule over all, the one who is to establish this unity and peace, is silent. He's not saying anything. And instead, people like Sheba and people like Joab take over, take control. Sheba doesn't want anything to do with this covenant of peace. So he calls the the ten northern tribes, let's leave. We want no part in this. Joab, who's been sidelined, sees this as an opportunity to take back his position, to become the general again. So there's no peace at Gilgal. There's only dissension, rivalry, disunity. And as I was reading this text, I was reminded of what the Apostle James says. And I want to use these words from James just to help us to appreciate what's going on in 2 Samuel 20. Now, James is speaking about wisdom, wisdom from below, wisdom from above. The wisdom from above brings peace. What we see on display here is the wisdom from below. It breaks peace. So this is James chapter 3, and I'll read verses 14 to 16 first. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So James warns us about the wisdom from below. And that wisdom is marked by two things, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And that's precisely what we see on display in this text. Sheba exemplifies bitter jealousy. And he breaks the peace of Israel because of it. And this is a warning to us that our bitter jealousy will destroy the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace among us. 
And then Joab, he exemplifies selfish ambition. And James warns us that selfish ambition will destroy the peace of God's people. Joab is a man who is motivated by selfish ambition. That's the wisdom from below, but we also have wisdom from above. This is James 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now we also get a glimpse of this wisdom from above in 2 Samuel chapter 20. We see it in the wise woman in the city of Abel. She is a peacemaker. Joab and Sheba are peace breakers, but she makes peace. The wisdom from above is peaceable. And what does she say? I belong to those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. So we catch a glimpse of this wisdom from above, and we are reminded that as those who belong to Christ, as those who belong to the heritage of the Lord, as those who are filled with the Spirit, we live in this wisdom that comes from above. And it is peaceable. It is faithful. It produces a harvest of righteousness. So we, we have to consider this wisdom from below and this wisdom from above. So the wisdom from below, first of all, bitter jealousy. And this is what we see in Sheba, bitter jealousy. And we need to hear those final few verses in chapter 19 because it gives us the context. They're in Gilgal and we see this dissension and this strife. So look at verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? And brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him. Now remember the context. David is returning to Jerusalem, and there's, in a sense, a triumphal procession back into Jerusalem. And the tribes of Israel had gathered together and said, hey, we should go and bring him over. We should join him in this procession back. We'll bring him over the Jordan. And as they are deliberating and talking about this, David reaches out to the men of Judah. And he says, you are my flesh and blood. You're my kin. Why should you be last to come and take me over? Come, hurry up, get here on time. And then we, we saw those other three men that come and meet David. That's what we considered last week. And they bring him over. Well, once that's happened, the men of Israel, they've missed out on that. And so they come with this complaint. Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away from us? They stole you from us. Now, that's an accusation, and it's not quite true. Because we read that half of the men of Israel brought David across. Some of them were there. But notice in the accusation, the, the men of Israel assume the worst of the men of Judah. Yeah, we know what you're up to trying to steal David away from us, keep him away from us. We know. We know what you're up to. They impugn their motives. They assume the worst. Now, this is typical of our relationships. Some of you have experienced this yourself. Either you've been guilty of this kind of bitter jealousy, or you've seen it at work in your relationships or in your families. 
You know, there are some families where there are members within those families who haven't talked to one another for years. And when you get back to the source of that separation, you find out, well, they, they, there was a birthday that was missed. Or, you know, we had people over and we didn't get uh, a sufficient word of thanks or appreciation. It's usually something small like that. But then the person who's been slighted, the person who's been overlooked, the person who's missed out, hey, I saw you guys all got together. I see this, you know, on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, this big party, I was left out. And a little root of bitter jealousy starts to take root. And then it grows and it grows. And you assume the worst. Yeah, you intentionally left us out. It was on purpose that you forgot my birthday. It starts to take root. And it happens in the life of the church too. There are times, many of you have experienced this, where you, f- you feel you've been overlooked. You've missed out on something. You see someone else being commended or thanked for their service in the life of the church. You're thinking, well, I've never been thanked. I've never had that word of commendation. What about what I'm doing? We feel overlooked. We feel we've been missed out. That's what's happened with the, the men of Israel here. We were overlooked. We missed out. And bitter jealousy starts to take root. And we start to assume the worst of other people. We impugn their motives. We assume, oh, there's definitely malice there. Now notice that they're addressing David here. They come to David. Look, the men of Judah have stolen you away from us. David doesn't give an answer. He doesn't speak up. And we know from the previous chapter what happened. David was the one who had gone to them and said, come on, let's go, the men of Israel. They want to get here first. You're my own flesh and blood. You should be here first. He had shown favoritism. And at that point, he could have said, my brothers, there's been a misunderstanding. Look, that that was my fault. And I was concerned that the men of Judah who had just recently, they they had risen up against me. I wanted to make sure I was making peace with them. But I realize now I, I hadn't reached out to you. That's on me. That was my fault. I shouldn't have done that. He could have addressed it right there. He should have addressed it right there. He's silent. He doesn't say anything. And how often for us when we have an opportunity just to speak up, just to clarify a matter, hey, I don't think that's the case. Just to, just to speak a bit of clarity, a bit of reassurance into a situation, but we don't. Or someone comes to us with a, a complaint about another person and, and we just sit there and we receive the complaint. And then we're hearing that and that root of bitterness is starting. It's like a little vine that starts to kind of get a hold of us. And we're like, yeah, you're right about that person. Now that, now that I think of it, I look back and uh, yeah, I think maybe there was a few times where they purposely overlooked me in something. When instead, we could just say, hey, maybe there's been a misunderstanding. Why don't you go talk to the person? Find out what happened there. So David is silent. He doesn't speak up and say, look, here's what happened. It's it's okay. So verse 42, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. So they asked David, he's silent, the men of Judah answer. Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten all at, the, at all at the king's expense? 
Or has he given us any gift? Now notice that the men of Israel are upset here, not because of any kind of gifts that the men of Judah received. David was the gift. That's what they missed out on. And instead, their response is simply, well, he's our close relative. Like, obviously, we're first. You know, he's our close relative. That's not helping anything. This is not a wise response from the men of Judah. It's not a gracious response from the men of Judah. They could have just said, yes, we should have waited for you. We didn't. We're sorry. But no, no, they say, well, you know, we're closer to David than you are. So actually, you're right. You're not quite, you know, you should be at a certain distance. You know, we're closer. We've got an in with David. And then the men of Judah respond. See how this is ratcheting up. Sorry, the men of Israel answer the men of Judah. Yeah, okay, fine. You're his close relative, but we have 10 shares in David. You've got one share in David. We've got 10 shares in David. 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? And then there's just this summary statement. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now this is the context in which Sheba stands up and says, Men of Israel, we have no share in David. Every man to his tents. In other words, we're leaving. We don't want any part of this kingdom. We don't want any part of this covenant. Now Sheba stood up in response to the the words of the men of Judah, which were fiercer. Now this is all the wisdom that's from below. And here we need to hear just a couple of Proverbs. Consider Proverbs 19.11. It's a glory to overlook an offense. It's a glory to overlook an offense. Listen, we're all going to offend one another at one point or or at one time or another. We will. We'll let each other down. We won't be thinking. It's not that we're being necessarily malicious, but sometimes we just overlook or we miss out or we, we don't communicate well. It's a glory to overlook an offense. And that word glory is significant. Whenever we, we hear in Scripture about the glory of human beings, our glory, it's always tied to the image of God. In other words, we reflect God when we overlook an offense. Read through Psalm 103, a beautiful psalm. And it's a psalm that exhorts us, you know, oh, my soul, do not forget his benefits. Do not forget the benefits of the Lord. And it says in verse 10, the Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. And we, when we don't treat others as their sins deserve, it's a glory to us. We're reflecting the image of God. Or Proverbs 15.1. Just imagine this happened in this context. A gentle answer turns away wrath. That's all that was needed. A gentle answer from David or from the men of Judah. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. That's exactly what's happening in this situation. 
And then Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before a quarrel breaks out. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. I don't know if you've ever been working on your kitchen faucet. You know, maybe there's a leak and you're trying to fix it and all of a sudden you forgot to turn the water off below and it sprays out everywhere. And you're grabbing washcloths and towels to try and contain it. You can't contain it. Or sometimes I do this. If I'm in the, in the backyard and the hose is out and I need to put the nozzle on and the hose is running, instead of just taking, you know, two seconds to walk back and turn off the hose, I'll try and kink it and get the nozzle on, but then I'll lose the kink and it's half on and it's spraying all over me. That's what this proverb is saying. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. You can't, you can't contain it once it's out. That's what's happened here. The water's been let out. So wisdom says, quit before a quarrel breaks out. A gentle answer. Overlook an offense. But that's not what happened, and the water's let out, and Sheba stands up. The beginning of chapter 20. Now there happened to be there a worthless man. That's how he's introduced. We know what he's about. He's worthless. He's a scoundrel. Whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So the peace has been broken. The covenant has been broken. Now Sheba's revolt, Sheba calling the people to leave there, that's just a symptom of the bitter jealousy that had taken root. He's a manifestation of that. He's filled with that same bitter jealousy. But as you read on, you find nothing really comes of it. You know, he makes his way all the way up to the far north. What he's doing is he's walking along and he's trying to gather support for this. And he's not getting any. Only his own immediate family gathers around him. So it's unsuccessful. It fails. And we read how it ends for him. Even in the city where he takes refuge, they won't have him. So Sheba's not really the concern in this chapter. Now David thinks he is. Oh, this is going to be worse than Absalom. David's overlooking the real threat in this chapter, and that is Joab. And Joab seizes this opportunity to reclaim his position. He's been set aside, and rightly so. But he takes advantage. And whenever there's a lack of peace, wicked men will take advantage. And he does. And here we see the other mark of wisdom from below, and that's selfish ambition. And Joab exemplifies this selfish ambition. Now notice that all along, though, Joab is claiming to be somebody who is fighting for David. You know, if you're with David, come with me. I'm on side. And notice that he he speaks the language of peace. He claims to be about peace. When he gets to that city and they lay siege to the city and the wise woman comes up to the wall, she calls down to him and she says, are you going to swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab says, no, 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 that's not me. No, no. Far be it from me that I should swallow up and destroy. That's not me. That's not true. I'm a man of peace. I come in peace. Meanwhile, we've just read that he murdered his cousin in cold blood. We've just read that. Joab is a man who swallows up. He is a man who destroys. And notice how he killed his cousin. This is Amasa. 
the general that David had put in place, in the place of Joab. It was Joab's cousin. Notice how he approaches Amasa. This is verse 9. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? Again, there's the word shalom there. Is it well with you? Is it peace with you? Is it shalom with you? He's coming in peace. He's concerned about the well-being of Amasa. Is it shalom with you? Is it well with you? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. It's the kiss of peace. Maybe a little warning here about long beards, Brandon. It's a liability. But, but, Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. Amasa thinks Joab comes in peace. He doesn't come in peace. And he meets a grisly end. He did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. And here, as we look out at the world around us, we hear the rhetoric of peace. We hear the rhetoric of justice and righteousness. And we need to be paying attention because often behind that rhetoric of peace and concern for well-being or righteousness or justice, there is a sword hidden. Now think about one of the lead stories in the news this week has been the province's plan to bring children back to school. We've been hearing a lot about this. And you've been hearing all the concerns. Is it going to be safe? Are they, are they going to be okay? And our premier is saying, yes, yes, that's my number one priority, is the safety of our children. Everyone is concerned about the safety of children. The well-being of children. And while we're hearing that rhetoric, and we're hearing those concerns being expressed and communicated. Meanwhile, in this province of Ontario, a hundred children are murdered in the womb every day. Every day, a hundred children are murdered in the womb in this province. One in five pregnancies ends in abortion. And here we are saying, oh, the safety of the children, the safety of the children. Make sure they're okay. We're worried about the children. Well, one in five don't make it out of the womb because we murder them. So yes, Joab speaks peace, peace, but Amasai did not see the sword in his hand. And we hear our politicians speaking peace, peace. We're concerned about the children. Meanwhile, there is a sword that cuts down One in five children in the womb. Now as we read on, it sounds as though Joab is successful. Everything works out for him, no problem. He's not held to account for Amos' death. He's the general now. He's never appointed to that position, but he assumes it. And we're simply told at the end of the chapter, this is verse 23, now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. He's back. It looks as though all is well for Joab. It worked. He's not held to account. He's not brought to justice. The wicked prosper. But one of the themes that we have seen in First and Second Samuel is that the wicked do not prosper. You will reap what you sow. God is not mocked. And we've seen that with Ahithophel. 
with Absalom, with Sheba. God does not overlook the evil committed by wicked men, and he will judge them in the end. And that is what happens. On his deathbed, David calls Solomon over, and he says, you need to deal with Joab. And he tells him why. Because Joab murdered Abner and Amasa. Now, Abner was the appointed general of Israel's army. Well, Joab, in his selfish ambition, wanted to be the general of Israel's armors, uh, army. So he murdered Abner. And then Amasa was made general of Israel's army. army. Well, Joab wants to be the general of Israel's army, so he murdered Amasa. And what David says is, Joab murdered, he killed, he spilt blood in a time of peace. He spilt blood in a time of peace. The wisdom from below does not make peace. It does not bring peace. And at the end of his life, Joab supports Adonijah, to be the king when David had made Solomon king. And he is chased by Solomon's general, and we meet him here actually in this text, Benaiah. And he runs into the tent of the Lord. And he grabs a hold of the horns of the altar. He thinks now he'll have sanctuary. The Lord will take him. The Lord will protect him. And he died there. He was struck down there. He was killed there. David says to Solomon, do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. And it doesn't. So it looks like at the end of this chapter, oh, it all works out for Joab. It doesn't. His last breath, he was in the tent of meeting, grabbing a hold of the horns of the altar, and he was struck down there. Now what we see in both of these men, Sheba and Joab is the wisdom that's below in it. It's the wisdom that breaks peace. Bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition. Now, we may read an account like this and think, well, I'm not Joab. Like, I am not a a cold-blooded, I'm going to wipe out all my rivals and get to the top at any cost. That's not me. But there is a warning in Scripture about letting our own selfish ambition or our self-interest rob us and rob the, the church, rob the community of peace. Because we're looking out for number one. We're looking out for ourselves. And whatever's happening around us, we, we think about it in terms of, well, how does this affect me? What does this look like for me? And the Apostle Paul gives us the word which rebukes and corrects our self-interest, our selfish ambition. It's in Philippians 2. And he says there, he's calling them. He says, be of one mind, be of one heart, be at peace with one another. And if that's going to happen, he says this, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If there's going to be peace, if there's going to be unity and harmony amongst God's people, then we have to deal with our own 
selfish ambition and our self-interest. Paul says, look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. And then he says this. It's not a matter, we can't just leave it there and think, okay, I'm going to work really hard at that. Just kind of work at rooting out my own ambition and thinking about other people. No, he says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is what Paul is saying. If you want to root out self-interest, selfish ambition, and look to the interests of others, it's not a matter of making a resolution and working at that. Paul says, have the mind that is yours in Christ. Look to Christ. Study, meditate his life. Consider his humiliation on the cross. Consider his exaltation in his resurrection and ascension. And in the presence of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, your selfish ambition will melt. Your self-interest will go away. As you fix your eyes on him, as you see him, look to him. And your selfish ambition will melt. And then you will see, you will, you will recognize the needs, the concerns, the interests of others. And that promotes peace. That brings peace. So the wisdom from below, it's marked by bitter jealousy. It's marked by selfish ambition. But James says the wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And we catch a glimpse, a glimpse of that wisdom from above in the woman from Abel. Notice that there is a harvest of righteousness because of her wise intervention. Sheba is brought to justice. There's righteousness there. And as a result, Joab blows the horn. The army is dispersed. There's peace. Because of her wisdom and the exercise of her wisdom, there is righteousness and she makes peace. And notice how she does that. So look at verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen. Tell Joab, come here that I may, make, that I may speak to you. And he came near. And the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Now, first of all, notice how she exercises her wisdom. Notice how she makes peace. She speaks up. She speaks out. This is a pretty bold move. 
knowing who Joab is. Hey, Joab, come here. We need to talk. Listen to me. And I don't think you have to know much about the ancient world and the roles of men and women in the ancient world to recognize the power imbalance here. This is just like Abigail confronting David earlier. Joab, come here. Listen. Are you Joab? Listen. Listen to what I have to say. And so it is for us. If we have the wisdom from above, we're not quietly sort of reflecting on it and kind of whispering it to one another. The wisdom from above is bold. The wisdom from above speaks out. It speaks up. It says, listen. But notice, she says, Joab, you come and listen. It is personal and it's direct. So I'm not saying, hey, everybody, go take to Twitter and start, you know, tweeting Bible verses. Or That's not what she does. She says, Joab, you and I need to talk. It's personal and it's direct. And so for us, it's personal, it's direct. Speak into people's lives, people you know. Speak the wisdom that is from above. Speak up, speak out. And then verse 18. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? She's the only person in this whole text that mentions the Lord. Joab, why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? The Lord. The wisdom that is from above knows the heritage of the Lord, speaks of the heritage of the Lord, defends the heritage of the Lord. She's the only one in this whole, in this whole scene that says, where's the Lord in this? Who's consulted him? What about the heritage of the Lord? What about his covenant? And so it is for us, if we have the wisdom from above, if we are exercising that wisdom, we will, we will know our place in the heritage of the Lord. And we will speak of the heritage of the Lord that we belong to him, that we belong to Christ, that he has purchased us for himself by his precious blood, that we are the treasured possession of the Lord. Joab, are you thinking about what you're doing in terms of the precious possession of the Lord? And as we think about our relationships with one another, are we thinking about the precious inheritance, the the heritage of the Lord? that your brother or sister, who, yes, may be provoking you to jealousy. But your brother and sister is one for whom Christ died. They belong to the heritage of the Lord. They're His. You're His. And she recognizes that, okay, David may not be doing a stellar job right now. This is not, you know, a shining moment for David as a king. Bathsheba has come and said, we will, have no, we will have no heritage with David. No heritage with the son of David. But she knows that the heritage of David is the heritage of the Lord. And I know it's easy to look out at the church at a time like this and recognize all of the faults, all of the failures. But 
But those who belong to Christ, we are the heritage of the Lord. And yes, we are a bride that still has spots and wrinkles. But we're the heritage of the Lord. And as we are faithful to one another, we demonstrate our faithfulness to the Lord. And there's no place for bitter jealousy. There's no place for selfish ambition. So this morning we consider the wisdom that is from above. And James says it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle. It's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial and it's sincere. And as we desire to walk in that wisdom and grow in that wisdom, let's remember it's wisdom from above. It's from above. It's not from below. It's not from us. And that's why the book of James begins, the letter of James begins by saying, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. And God will generously give it. This wisdom is a gift. And it's a gift of the Spirit. And so the wisdom from above is bestowed, it's given by the the Spirit of God. And so we call out to the Spirit of God, grant us this wisdom that we might speak up to the world around us, to those in our lives. Speak the wisdom. Say, hey, listen up. Listen to this. That we might be peaceable. That we might be faithful. That we not only recognize our the fact that we belong to the heritage of the Lord and defend it, but call others to become a part of it. Now, every Sunday we come to the Lord's table. And this table is a table where we renew our covenant with Christ. It's a table of peace. This is a place where peace is sown. The host of this table is the Prince of Peace. And as we come to the Lord's table now, I want us to be meditating on these words, to hear these words, the words of the Prince of Peace who calls us to peace. So I want to read these words and then we'll come to the Lord's table. This is Ephesians 2, 17 to 22. And Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's come to the Lord's table. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.